Good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Tally. I am the teaching pastor here at Grace. And I want to invite you, if you're relatively new to Grace. Now, what does that mean, relatively new? If, if you've been coming over the last six months even, and you've, you don't really know a lot of people here, we're having a discovery lunch immediately after the service this morning. We're going to have pizza and I don't know what all they have planned for us this morning, but I mean, we're going to have a good turnout. The Petersons are going to be here, so that'll be a good turnout anyway. But we would love for you, if, you are, if you're not involved in a home group, even if you are, and this is your first real official connection with TVR, please come to that discovery lunch afterwards. Um, I wanted to mention one special prayer request this morning, and look, there there are a lot of these types requests, but uh, Debbie Nelson was just recently diagnosed with breast cancer, and she and Gary are determining treatment options, and so we just want to uh, pray for them. And, and listen, there are a lot of people who are, are suffering in our church, and uh, this next leadership team meeting on Wednesday night, May 7th, so about 10 days from now, uh, we're going to call for a special night of prayer and encourage as many of you as possible to be here at 6.30 and to be praying for people in our body with uh, particular, especially physical needs. We have so much of that. And we may have some people share about some of the things that, that, that are going on in their lives in different ways that we can, or specific ways that we can pray for them. I, I was thinking uh, this morning, as I was talking with Debbie just before the service, uh, we were talking about Philippians 4, 6, and 7, about uh, bringing all of our requests to God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Linda used to say, the peace of God that doesn't make sense. And um, it, it's true, that kind of peace. But as we were talking, I, I do my some of my best thinking out loud. I do some of my worst thinking out loud, and I never know what's going to happen, but... As I was thinking about that, you know that peace, because they've got a lot of decisions to make. The peace isn't in our ability to guess what God wants us to do. The peace is in God. The peace is in a sovereign God. Doesn't that really bother you sometimes when you've got to make a really difficult decision and you're thinking, Lord, I, I've got to get this right. I need to know your will. Listen, to, just trust God. What I pray for you when you've got a tough decision is this. Lord, help him or her make the right decision, whether it feels like right or not. Because sometimes it doesn't feel right. Sometimes you think you're, you're constantly second-guessing. What, what should I have done? Did I make the right decision? Oh, no. Am I on the wrong track and now I've messed up? No. No, that's not the way. God wants us to trust him. He will help us to make the right decision. And sometimes, look, some of you, you can make a decision and that's it. And I'm certain this is what God wants to do. Others of you, you know, will be, if God allowed it, you would be questioning it well into eternity. But he won't allow that. When we get there, it's all, it's all the way it was meant to be from the get-go. And you know what? God is right now what he has always been. And so we can always trust him doesn't mean there are not some difficult decisions Gary and Debbie have to make. doesn't mean that there won't be anxious moments. Just pray 
that their trust will be in the God who is eminently trustworthy, who is our rock, who never changes. With all that's going on in our lives, He never changes. Well, let's focus on Mark 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. You know, we, we tell stories to make a point. I, I mean, sometimes we, we tell stories just simply to give an account of something that happened. And some people, it feels like, you know, tell stories just because they like the sound of their own voice, you know. And they're just always talking. And I could be pretty close to that category sometimes. Um, but even history has something to tell us it almost always, even local, personal history almost always has meaning. We tell stories to explain why things are the way they are. We tell stories to make people laugh or to cry. We tell stories to draw people into us in order to affirm our worthiness in their eyes and in ours. We want to feel like we mean something, like we count. We tell stories to let people how intelligent we are or how we possess the proper sensibilities in contemporary culture or to establish our identity with the group that doesn't care about the proper sensibilities of the current culture. You know, it's just whatever. We're telling stories for a reason, to make a point. And that's what the gospel writers did. You know, John said it so well when he said, Look, there are, it would fill all the books in the world almost if we told everything that Jesus did. But, but, but these things have been told so that you might believe. The gospel writers had a purpose when they structured their material the ways that they did. I hope as we've gone through the gospel of Mark that there have been times that you felt like you were walking right along with him. You know, that you just get a sense that you're there on the scene. Look, if you can really get into that this morning, I got to tell you, and, and over the next several weeks as we think about what happened on Passion Week, it's going to be a tough week. It's going to be a tough several weeks as we walk with Jesus. If you had been with Jesus on the days that the events took place on the Monday and Tuesday of Passion Week, the the events that we're going to think about this morning, you would most likely be confused and more than a little frightened. Now, it's not that you're scared sitting here 2,000 years later because you weren't really with Jesus. But if you have the ability to project yourself into that place, you're going to feel the emotions that they did. And even now, we're going to be more than a little bit confused Unless we recognize that Mark structured these stories in such a way to make a point. And sometimes the point may not have all the application that we wanted to. We've talked about this recently. People go to church and say, tell me what I need to know and tell me what I need to do. The Bible doesn't work that way. It's more like, tell me what I need to know and what I need to believe. And when I believe what I should then the, the actions will more than likely follow. But we've confused the way God presents himself and his will for us with the way that Americans do in the five ways to have a better this or that or whatever. 
it's pretty clear that what happened, pretty if you, you know, if you're from Johnston County, but pretty for the rest of us. No, I'm just kidding. I'm the one that said it, right? Pretty. It's pretty clear that these events happen in the exact order that Mark structures them. When we talk about Mark, it's, you know, it's just as likely that it was Peter saying. Well, in fact, it was almost certainly Peter saying it happened just like this. But Mark structured it in such a way that we would get the point Jesus was making. Um, We're going to read about Jesus cursing the fig tree, his clearing of the temple, and his debate over authority with the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Uh, In all four sections, because it's fig tree, uh, clearing the temple, fig tree, debate with the Pharisees, they're all related. They all interconnect. I looked at uh, more sources than usual in preparation for this message. And I have to tell you that there are quite a few different thoughts about the exact meaning of everything that occurred over these two days. But there's one thing that everyone agrees on. This is one of, if not the toughest section to understand in all the Gospels. I mean, it's just, it just doesn't make sense to a lot of people. So after a great deal of study and prayer it's it's an honor and a privilege as it always is it is every Sunday to share with you what the Holy Spirit has taught me and when I say that I don't mean that you've got all these brilliant scholars and godly men and women who differ on what they understand this to be that I've got it exactly right that's not the point that I'm making but I think it some of this will begin to clear up in your mind and and, and as we piece it all together, it'll make more sense than it would have uh, without our time together this morning. At least I hope that's the case and I hope that I won't lose you in the trees. The title of the message is Authority, Faith, and Forgiveness. And, And again, let me just say, I've already sort of prepared the way for this. This is more explanation than application. There's plenty of application here, but... But if we don't understand what's being said, there's a whole lot of misapplication here. A whole lot. So it's very important that we get the meaning of Mark 11, 12 to 33. Uh, You'll recall from two weeks ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem. By the way, the reason we we took a detour from Mark to Luke last week is because we're going to be reading the account of that Mark gives of the resurrection of Christ. And so I just wanted to do something a little bit different on, on Easter Sunday. But, but the Sunday before that, we were in the first part of Mark 11, the triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem and he's hailed as a king and the Messiah by all the people. And Mark tells us symbolically that Jesus went into the temple on Sunday afternoon, looked around, and went back to Bethany. One commentator that I read said it was late in the day, and it was late in the day for the temple as well. That's, again, symbolic, and it it ties in with where we're going today. Verse 12 picks up on Monday morning as Jesus and his disciples make their way from Bethany to Jerusalem. We're going to pray, and then we'll begin working our way through Uh, The text and application will come as we go. I want to ask you to stand as we typically do this morning just because of the way our time is structured. Uh, Let's pray.
Lord, um, uh, we recognize that we are incapable of coming to your word and just understanding all that you wanted to tell us on our own. Uh, Lord, even though we have the the gift of the Holy Spirit, every one of us who belongs to Jesus has the Holy Spirit working in our lives and we can understand truth that we would not otherwise be able to understand. But even so, you have appointed teachers and, and, and prophets and apostles, not that the apostles and the prophets in the way that they were in that day are with us today, but you have given those to help us understand Scripture, And I pray that our hearts and eyes would be opened on this day to what you were trying to communicate about your plan for Jerusalem in the coming days. And then help us to see how that impacts us in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. I got to tell you, this particular miracle drives some scholars batty. I mean, why would Jesus destroy something that was not doing what it was incapable of doing at that time of the year? It wasn't the time for for figs, and Jesus goes looking for them, and he curses the tree because he doesn't find what's there. One scholar wrote that it was a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. Another suggested that the cursing of the fig tree is a tale that is unworthy of Jesus, pointing to a petulant spirit. Now, some thus suggest that this story doesn't belong in the New Testament or that Jesus was just a man after all, a good man. But he was given to the same types of fleshly impulses that you and I are given to. But it's only those who would find fault with Jesus or with the Scriptures who who refuse to work through difficult passages like this. The kinds of comments that that talk about this being unworthy of Jesus or, or, or he's just, it's, it's a miracle wasted for him to curse this tree come from a view of Jesus or a view of Scripture that is just entirely too low, that's, that's, that's low, period. We don't need any other descriptors. It's low. If you want to find fault, not, I'm not going to say you can't, you will. If you want to find fault with the Word, if you want to find fault with Jesus, you will. So people look at this and they say, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, we got a problem here. It's better for us to seek understanding, to have faith and to seek understanding to the best level that we can. And then trust afterwards that Jesus does all things well. Because the two accounts of the fig tree book in the activities that are at the temple, that happen at the temple, then they're connected. Mark structured them in this way. Fig tree, temple, fig tree. There's a connection. 
So what's going on at the fig tree is just a symbol. Or it's symbolic. And, and by the way, the fig tree is symbolic of Israel. It's a symbol for Israel over and over in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, Micah. You see, Israel called the fig tree. And so it's connected with the clearing of the temple. Now, when we begin thinking about what happened here, we have to ask the question, should there have been fruit on the tree at this time of the year? I read nine to ten different sources. I think there were nine to ten different answers. I mean, some one, one person said, Tim Keller, no less, said that there's a little nodule that comes on the trees at that time of the year that is not only edible, but is quite sweet. I didn't see anybody else say that. I saw a couple of guys say there was a a bud of some sort or, or, or some green fruit and, and it, it was edible. Because this is in the spring, remember, late March, early April. Uh, it was edible, but it wouldn't be good. It, it would do the job if you were starving, but wouldn't be that, that good. Uh, one commentator suggested that, you know, that there are a few species of fig trees that do produce fruit at that time of year. And a, a tree in full... Uh, leaf would indicate that there should be figs on the tree. Um, Mark, or again, more specifically, Peter tells us, though, that it wasn't the time for fruit. So there must be something going on here that is deeper than we're able to discern on the surface. But that's often the case, especially in the Gospels, isn't it? People talk about, oh, I just love to read the teachings of Jesus because they're so simple. Uh, No, they're not. Difficult. While making his way to Jerusalem with his disciples, Jesus was hungry. And he went to a fig tree with leaves, but it had no fruit. So he cursed the tree, causing it to die. Why? Because he was throwing a tantrum? Seriously, do you, you, you don't want to seriously entertain that, do you? I mean, the man who fasted for 40 days and took the absolute best that Satan had to throw at him and did not sin, and the one that we're told over and over does not sin, we, we think that he's going to curse a McDonald's because he's hungry at 3 a.m. and it, everybody knows it closes at 11? No. Jesus used his hunger in the tree. He used material props or circumstances to make a spiritual point. Now, I don't think I have this written anywhere in here. We're going to talk about authority later. Look, Jesus created the tree and do anything he wants. And as Ken Hughes said, man, this tree, I mean, it, you know, you've heard the, the, the little story story about the tree that was cut down to be a cross it wanted to be you know a ship and it wanted to be these great things but it ended up being a cross look this tree served humanity more than any other tree just about except for the cross so if if you want to go in that direction you can the point that jesus was making here is it a religious organization or an individual can have the appearance of life, can have all, all the appearance that there's something going on in a relationship with God. 
And yet if it produces no spiritual fruit, it's in danger of God's judgment. It's not just an appearance of godliness, but it's confidence in the flesh that says like Michael Bloomberg said this. You hear Michael Bloomberg this past week? Anybody hear that? Former mayor of New York. He said, I'm telling you, if there's a God when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Why this confidence? He's spending $50 million of his own money to promote gun control legislation. Now, before you mock, on what is your confidence based of heaven? I'm a church member. I've been baptized. I give money. I do these things. Look, that's what they were doing at the temple. And they were doing it way better than you're doing. You think about these Pharisees and you think, what disgust. No, these were some of the most honorable people you could ever meet. Upstanding, moral. If your faith and trust is in Jesus, excuse me, you'll have to wait. If your faith and trust is in Jesus then your place in heaven is assured. It's not based on, and you know it's not based on what kind of money you give to what cause or what you do for other people. Your your place in heaven is only assured when you repent of your sins, when you acknowledge before God, I'm a sinner and I have no hope of standing before you without the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's where all of this is heading now. It's all heading this way. In this story. If, you, if that's where your trust is. Then your place in heaven is assured. But one application. Believers should draw from this text. Is how easy it is to move. From life to the appearance of life. That's why we need to preach the gospel. To ourselves every day. And not just look good. But understand. That apart from Christ. We're nothing. It's so easy to move from relationship to ritual. And so let's be challenged toward gospel purity while learning that in cursing the fig tree and putting an end to hypocrisy, Jesus is ultimately pointing to the end of the temple system, which was hopelessly mired in performance Based efforts to relate to God that produced pride, hypocrisy, and ultimately death. Now, I don't know, maybe that was one of those, huh, moments, you know, where we're all talking about the fig tree and all of a sudden now Jesus is saying the temple system is coming to an end. That's what Mark does, just like that. He goes from the tree to the temple. And so Jesus moves Towards Jerusalem and toward the temple. Now, if your Bible is open at Mark 11, which I hope it is, um, look down and see on your phone if that's where your Bible is. If your Bible has headings on the different sections, what is this section titled? Almost certainly it's going to be called the cleansing of the temple. It's probably not the best title. Because Jesus wasn't so much purifying the temple or getting things 
back to rights. He was saying, it's over. It's done. He was pronouncing judgment on the Jewish leaders and the ways that they had perverted God's intention for his house, for the place that God communed with his people. Let's read beginning in verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temples. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Now, I've never taught in this kind of posture, you know, where you're just turning things over and kicking and get out! And let me just tell you something while I'm at it, you know. And So I love it. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And you know that he was much more passionate than I was just now. And the chief priest and the scribes and the elders, by the way, that are mentioned in this, they make up the Sanhedrin, these 70 rulers over all of Israel. You could just say the Sanhedrin heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. Why? For they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. Probably wasn't safe to stay in Jerusalem. Now, it would be helpful to know just a few things about what was going on here. The selling of animals in the Jewish temple complex, which is the court of the Gentiles, this huge area where Gentiles are allowed. There's a certain place where women could go. There's a certain place where Gentiles could go, but then only the Jews could go deeper into the temple until you finally get to the Holy of Holies where the chief priest, the high priest, can only go in one time a year. But in this uh, court of the Gentiles, they, they were selling animals. Now, prior to this, you've got the Mount of Olives. Bethany is up here, the Mount of Olives. You go down the mountain into to the Kidron Valley, and you cross over. Those of you that have been in Jerusalem can see it. You walk into the gate, into the temple. The temple is right there where you walk in. And it's up on a mount. It's, the, it's Mount Zion. It's like a little hill. But, but it's called Mount Zion. It's where God meets his people right there. And pr- prior to, to, to just around A.D. 30, so somewhere right in the time where Jesus is there, they began selling animals in the court of the Gentiles. Previously, they had been sold. There were four stations up on the Mount of Olives that were licensed to sell animal sacrifices. And that was, you know, look, if Seth and Kat, you know, if they're going to travel all the way to Cary, they don't want to take their sacrifice with them, their animal for sacrifice. So they buy one when they get there, you know. And that's what was happening up on the, the Mount of Olives. But now it's in the... It's in the Gentile court of the Gentiles. And the tendency is to think, oh, well, they were, you know, selling at exorbitant prices. Well, no, not really, not yet. Anyway, they just covered the cost of, 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 of the festivities of the day. 
Who knows what would have happened if they had gotten a monopoly? Clearly, their plan was to drive these other sites out of business. Now, it's, it's unlikely that, that Jesus was angry about the fact that the, the Sanhedrin was selling these animals. What bother, it may have bothered him. It may have angered him that they were selling pigeons. Because pigeons, you recall were used for sacrifice by the poor who couldn't afford lambs. Why are you even selling these pigeons? Can't we, can't we give some pigeons? Maybe. But that's not the point. That's not the point that Mark was making. It's not the point Jesus was making. And Mark gives us a little indication of what so bothered Jesus. Um, and in order to find out the, the cause of Jesus' anger and the message he was communicating, you have to understand the scripture that he referenced in his rebuke, or as Mark calls it, his teaching. First, Jesus referenced Isaiah 56, 7. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Almost always when Jesus would quote just a little piece of scripture, Old Testament scripture, to the Jewish leaders in particular, but even to the Jewish people. He expected them to know the context around it. So he was saying a whole lot more than just my house was intended to be a house of prayer for all nations. Didn't God say that? In Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, uh, God opens his arms to Gentiles. And says that those who commit themselves to Yahweh are counted as his people and are welcome in his house. The court of the Gentiles was there for Gentiles to come and to reflect on God. The righteous Gentiles of the day, those who had converted to Judaism, would come to this court of the Gentiles and they would feel near To God, they recognized that God's covenant was with his people Israel, but they were included. And and Isaiah 56 says, man, you're as good as anybody else. You're as good as the Jews if you trust in Yahweh. But instead of quiet reflections, there's a bazaar in there. I mean, you've got merchants and and buyers shouting, hey, over here, I've got a better price over here. How much? This amount. You ever been to... A Middle Eastern bazaar, it's, it's quite impressive. Right, Chris and Ashley? I mean, it's something to, to watch the bargaining going on. I was in Israel with Paul Jones one time. We were messing around right outside the old city. We went to Golgotha where I don't know how you cannot think that this is where Christ was crucified. You see the pictures of a skull. Man, when you're standing there, it looks just like a skull. Way more than the pictures. Don't do it justice. And we just wanted to be there. We, we stood out and we sang some hymns and quoted scripture. And then we were going to get a taxi back to our hotel. And this guy comes up and he says, hey, Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown. He knew Paul Jones. Some of you know Paul in the area, preacher in the area. And he called him Charlie Brown. And so he said, hey, come into my shop. And we go down the dark streets of narrow streets of Jerusalem. And he opens his shop. And he's going to sell this one piece to Paul. I'm making a very special price, $72. Well, ended up he sold it for 17 And when he sold it, he said, okay, set for everybody, 17 you know, and it all. Well, that kind of stuff's going on. 
in the court of the Gentiles. It's more than appropriate. And look, that's just the way they, they do it. It's not that we're better than them. You know, some dealers will haggle on cars, some won't. They're haggling like crazy in the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus said, no! Look, this house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You have made it a nationalistic divide. Gentiles are dogs, second-class citizens, and the only reason we let you have anything to do with this is because we can get something out of it. Jesus was furious. No wonder he was upset. He was, after all, Yahweh. This was his house. The more frightening reference was Jeremiah 7, 11. When Jesus said, you have made God's house a den of robbers. Again, the point was not that the price was too high. Robbers don't rob in their own den. The den is where robbers gather after they have done their work. It's a place of security. A place of sanctuary. If you were versed in the Old Testament scriptures, as the members of the Sanhedrin were, you would know that Jesus referenced a larger portion of scripture. Jeremiah 7, 1 to 15, really you could keep going even after verse 15. In which God said to his disobedient children just before Babylon came in, Enough! Enough! You take security in the temple and you say, surely God will not destroy his house. But you've missed the point of my love for you and my grace for you and your need for faith and belief in me. And you've made my house a den of robbers. Now that's a paraphrase so far, but look, look at Jeremiah seven fourteen to 15. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by na- my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you, and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, to the northern kingdom. In other words, I'm destroying Jerusalem and this house. I will cast you out of my sight, as I will cast out all of your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. So God is saying, I'm going to destroy. God is saying in Jeremiah, I'm going to destroy the temple. Jesus is saying in... Mark 11, I'm going to destroy the temple. I'm God. And I have the right to do with my house as I please because you've missed the point all along. Do you get that in light of all that? You understand all that Jesus was saying and quoting these two references. There's going to be a new way relating to God. Remember, it is trial. They use that against him. He says he's going to destroy the temple. At his crucifixion, they mocked him. Oh, you who will destroy the temple, come down, big man. This scene took place in a very small section of the temple. We think of it like Jesus is clear in the temple. No, the court of the Gentiles was huge. It's probably just a little, little section. And there's more that... I'm not going into about the details of what, what, what was going on that day, what were going on, was going on that day. But, but Jesus clear, clearly makes an impression on the Sanhedrin. They wanted to kill him. 
I mean, they were limited by Roman power, but this Sanhedrin was the ruling body over all of Judea. They, 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 they Civil, criminal cases, they tried. They couldn't execute anyone, as we'll see coming up. They had to get the Romans to do that for them, but they wanted to kill Jesus. There was a problem, though. Jesus was really popular with the people, so they... They schemed a way that they could trap him theologically. And they felt like if they could expose him for the fraud that he was. And for the, for, for the rebel who was going to have Israel's place amongst the nations destroyed. Because Rome would come in and say, you're trying to overthrow the empire. They thought that if they could expose him theologically. That the rest of the Jews would agree with them. And, and say, yeah, you're right. This guy's going to get us in big trouble. We need to kill him. But before they had a chance to engage Jesus in those kinds of debates that would expose his theological flaws, as they thought, Mark takes us back to the fig tree on Tuesday morning, tying the tree and the temple together. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look. The tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done to him. Wow, that's kind of a kind of a strange. Response. First of all, it's fairly impressive, is it not, that that the tree is withered so quickly. Ricky was talking about TVR today, and man, I spent a long time up there. We had this big tree that we used to uh, use this rope swing, and you would be twenty feet off the air. That was this was. We're talking when I first went to camp. This was like the early seventies. I wasn't the director then, but there was no safety harness. You just went off 20 feet. There was a local doctor's kid who fell off of that rope and broke both, broke both wrists. He broke two wrists. You know what everybody said to him, including his dad? Well, you let go of the rope. I mean, you idiot, what do you expect? It's a good thing you didn't break your head. You're lucky you only broke both wrists. It was a different day, to, to, to say the least. Well, I was going to make this brilliant point about TVR, but, you know, I I got caught up in the story. I don't know what the point is. I mean, you tell stories to make a point, right? And I don't remember. It'll come to me sometime in the middle of the night, and I'll tell Allison. Um, Oh, of course, that tree was a huge tree. One night in the middle of summer camp, the limb that had leaves all over it, the limb on which that, to which that rope swing was attached, came crashing down. Thank God it didn't happen. It had all of the appearance of life. It took years for the rot in that particular limb. Then we had to have tree doctors come out, you know, and check it out and make sure the rest of it wasn't going to fall. We had no idea. 
Trees are like, I mean, you can, it can show life for years and then all of a sudden it falls over and you say, wow, I didn't even know. Overnight, the next morning, this fig tree is withered to the roots. There's a message from Jesus here. Make no mistake. What I have decreed about the temple will happen. And it will happen sooner than you think. When the disciples expressed amazement, Jesus said, have faith in God. Then a promise that we're very familiar with. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now look, we know that in in, in Jewish life, mountains were represented obstacles and difficulties in life. So it makes perfect sense to say that this is a promise that if we believe in God, make sure you recognize the faith has to be in God. But if your faith is in God, He will overcome for you the obstacles, the mountains in your life. But don't you think it's odd placement in Mark's gospel? Right after they said, look, this thing is withered to its roots. Have faith in God. You can say to this mountain, be gone and it will be. Um, Do you think he's saying, if you have faith in God, you'll be able to destroy a mountain just like I've destroyed this fig tree? I doubt it. I doubt that's what he's saying. He's probably referring, almost certainly he is referring to a specific mountain. He says, you can say to this mountain. Is he talking about the Mount of Olives or the Temple Mount? Most likely, almost certainly, the latter. Jesus is saying the temple will be destroyed. Look, in Mark 13, we'll come to you in a week or two, a couple of weeks, the disciples are still saying, look, look at the stones of the temple, Jesus. Aren't they marvelous? Isn't this an amazing house? They're constantly trying to cover for him. And Jesus says, not one stone will be left on another. He makes no bones about it. This temple is going to be destroyed. And he was saying that this system that appears to be connecting people to me is rotten at the core. And it has to be replaced. So, Jesus is foretelling not only the destruction of the temple, but the the death of the old system. And that the new system will be characterized not by working your way up to God, a theology of glory. I'm going to reason my way to God. I'm going to work my way to God. I'm going to feel my way to God. None of that. But because He comes down. The cross, all of this teaching is interconnected. Not by working your way up to God, but by faith and forgiveness extended to you because He came down. Verse 24 Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If any have forgiven anything against anyone, so your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. I'm going to do something that I I just never do. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to just stop right here. I'm not done, but there's so much more that could be said. Look, there's enough material for several weeks of sermons here. And 
if, if, if we go through the rest of it too quickly, then we just miss it. So, <clears throat> I just want to stop here and, and ask <clears throat> that you will put your eyes on Jesus. As, as I will say next week, I had planned to say in just a few minutes, look, God establishes authorities in our lives. Um, in, in human realm, governments, families, church, um, jobs. He establishes authority in our lives, and it's his authority coming down to us. And, some, and because it's man who is the authority, it gets all messed up. But ultimately... We are looking to the one authority, the one who has the right to say, this is how it needs to be in your life. That's the Lord. Uh, you, you can go ahead and throw that up, Tony. I, this is what I was going to th- put up there, and then I'll come back to it next week. This, this is a marvelous book, Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. It's, it's about um, Scripture. It's, it, it's uh, sufficiency. It's clarity. It's a and the necessity of Scripture. It's a short book. It's eminently readable. It's to, I want you to get this book. I'm going to put a link on the city for it. And like I say, I'll probably come back. Because look, where do we find authority in our lives? Jesus is not with us. We find the authority in His Word. There's nothing in Scripture that contradicts Jesus. And there's nothing that Jesus said that contradicts Scripture. It's God's word. The Holy Spirit wrote it. So, this morning, as we close, let's just acknowledge before we even see this debate between Jesus and the disciples, or excuse me, the, uh, the Sanhedrin, that our authority is in Christ. Let's pray. The God who has power to curse a fig tree and then the next day it's dead has the power to give life where there is death. The God who desires that we come to Him in faith and that we extend the grace and forgiveness to others that Jesus gives to us, wants us to yield to Him. It's serious business. It's not not playing. And far too often we play at this thing And the Pharisees did some serious playing. The scribes, the chief priests, the uh, priesthood, all of those men that were in charge of the nation. And they convinced themselves because of the splendor of the temple and because of their very efficient running of the temple system and the sacrificial system and because that they were smart enough to add to God's laws. And, and, and impose many new regulations that would benefit society. And, and if people will just live as we tell them to live, they'll be right with God.
and we're automatically right with God. That they, they played with it. We can play with it too. God calls us to trust in Him, to have faith in God. And to have faith when the world as we know it crumbles all around us. God is in control. He is in charge and He's doing such a better thing than the thing in which you have so much security is in your life right now. Lord, we acknowledge our need of you. We acknowledge that far too often we play about relationship with you and it does become religion. Even those of us who know Jesus, thank you, Holy Spirit, that you don't let us stray too far. Thank you that you don't let us become confident in our own flesh. Thank you that the gospel is relevant to me. 42 years after I first believed the gospel. Thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus. And as we come to this time, as we always do on the last Sunday of the month for a benevolence offering where we get to say to those who are in need, not only I love you, but also I recognize that it may be my turn soon and that everything that we have is a gift from God. So Lord, give us generous hearts to give. Teach us what you want us to know from your word that we might believe. Jesus' name. Amen. I have to remind you all about the Discovery Lunch right after. So if you are willing and able, we would love to have you stay with us. Now, as we close, our benediction is from Colossians 3 from our brother Paul. And he has this to say to us Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God's word for the people. Go in peace.